Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studios, it's time for Workplace MVP. Workplace MVP is brought to you by R3 Continuum, a global leader in workplace behavioral health and security solutions. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gassman. Hi, everyone. Your host, Jamie Gassman here, and welcome to this edition of Workplace MVP. The Workplace MVP we will be celebrating today brings expertise in an area that can be helpful both personally and professionally. With us today to share his wisdom and knowledge regarding safety and security and crisis management is owner and managing director at Trident Manor Limited, Andy Davis. Welcome to the show, Andy, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Jamie. It's a a great pleasure. So before we dive into today's topic... Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career journey? Well, I suppose as your listeners will identify, I'm I'm from the UK and um, I, I've been involved in security and risk management most of my career, my adult career. Uh, that included time in the uh, British military uh, where I was involved in intelligence activities and security management um, in the police service in the UK um, where... Um, I was a detective and had helped led a team of uh, investigators, as well as finally um, undertaking intelligence activities. And then ultimately, I, I joined the Foreign Service and I, I did roles equivalent to your RSO, Regional Security Officers. And that took me to Uganda, Colombia, working in Venezuela, Guyana, Panama. Saudi Arabia, throughout the Middle East, and Pakistan. Um, Eventually, um, I entered the corporate world in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, where I took a position as the uh, corporate head of security. And then in 2013, I established Trident Manor, um, which is my own uh, security risk management consultancy. Great. Wow. What a journey you've had with your career. So you recently held a free virtual event that was focused on personal safety and security for women. Can you tell us about that event and why it was important to you? Yeah, well, lots of throughout my career, um, personal safety and security has, has always been important, whether it's my own personal safety and security or that's looking after and caring for other third parties. You know, so whether it was diplomats, diplomatic wives, et cetera. And sometimes that was in different, difficult and hostile environments. This um, this event that I held uh, followed the um, kidnap and murder of a, a young female in London by uh, a police officer who has been charged. And there was a lot of outcry, a lot of concern on social media, uh, on mainstream media about um, the safety of women. And so what I what I volunteered to do as an individual, as opposed to Trident Manor, um, was to hold this event where some of the realities could be shared about, certainly in the UK, the levels of, of crime, but also victimization, um, you know, shown and identifying that lots of it, lots of um, attacks on female was carried out by partners or people who they knew, and actually percentage-wise, uh, there was a small amount uh, that was by strangers, but it's primarily the strangers that cause the fear because they are the unknown. Then it went through a whole series of, of 
you know, try to give advice and guidance that would help everybody. And in this case, it was particularly aimed at females um, going about their daily lives. So whether they be um, socialising in the workplace, you know, or actually travelling overseas. So we we gave that um, presentation. It was well received. There was you know over there was over two hundred and fifty, I think, on the call from around the world. And we've since actually uploaded that again, free of charge, so that anybody can see and share that. Great! That sounds like a, a was a well attended event or a well received event because I'm sure the information you shared was, you know, very it's, helpful for that audience. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is important from the se- the sense of um, the reality versus perception, but also um, the vulnerability. Uh, of females and the idea was hopefully to give them some confidence um, in actually ways of avoiding um, some of the dangers themselves so proactive prevention rather rather than reacting to an incident you know because then if you can avoid an incident there's a great likelihood that you're not going to be hurt right so now looking at organizations you know what are you seeing as main concerns for them and their security in this current work environment you know what are some of the things that you're noticing in the work that you do uh, well i think around the world globally um cyber is the biggest threat um it's impacting all organizations uh, you know i mean there's just been the attack on the pipeline uh, that's happened on the east coast uh, of the USA. Look at the impact, you know, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars worth of impact that must have had. Um, but that happens to individuals, it happens to organisations, and it happens, you know, on a daily basis. There were some statistics that came out and actually showed that on average in the UK, um, every individual is attacked uh, once every seven minutes, which wow. if you think about, so that's statistically looking at people. So cyber um, is is a constant and it's there um, because it's information that's, that companies need to, organ, uh, to, to operate and to function correctly. Um, there are other threats. The, there has been an increase in protests, and the protests have directly impacted retail, hospitality, museums, public services. Um, but the primary threat that I see at the moment globally is from um, cyber. So you shared with me in a previous conversation that protection is primarily about common sense. Can you elaborate on this and what that means to a workplace leader? Well, I, I mean, you say to a workplace leader and really it's it's to everybody. Um, and one of the things that we really talk about as being a cornerstone of, of personal safety is situation awareness. Um, and part of situation awareness is actually engaging with your brain, engaging with your senses. Um, but common sense, when we look at security protection, if people just actually stopped and thought about what they're doing, stopped and thought about what risks there are, and stopped and thought, why am I putting myself in danger? Why don't I avoid it? Um, you know, it's it's common sense. From a security practitioner's point of view, we look at things exactly the same. You know, we'll look at things from a common sense approach. Um, good security 
And when we talk about good security, it's not Gucci where you have the, the most expensive technical systems and the biggest barrier in the concrete walls. It's that where those of us need to get, continue with our lives, our business need to operate. And it's adopting a common sense approach. Common sense approach is understanding what risks exist for you and your business and taking proportionate steps to actually manage those risks so you can continue uh, to operate, to function, create, and to create money or to make money, but at the same time avoid unnecessary risks that exist. And I, I think there's, you know, there's a, a somebody said asked me years ago. Well, okay, what percentage of what skill sets do you need for security? And I, I said, you know, ninety to ninety-five percent of it is is common sense. Seven um, percent is you know, is that specialist specialist skills. And then there's always that element of luck that's still needed uh, to avoid security situations. We can't predict and we, you know, we can't dictate what happens out there. Um, but, you know, when, when you look and, and you uh, introduce security plans and measures, I, I still think that's sound and, and, and remains true to this day. So, and I know you mentioned cyber attacks as being <clears throat> kind of a, a main concern right now and, and brought up some of the, the protests, which kind of lead a little bit more into um, this next question that I have for you. When looking at leaders, you know, when they're asked about workplace violence, um, they often refer to like actor, active shooter scenarios, which I know, you know, recently here in the States, we've had kind of a, a, a stream of them that have been occurring. Now the softer, but you you indicated that there is a softer side of protection that workplace leaders need to be considering as well. So, in your opinion, what does that look like, and why is it so important for business leaders to also, you know, stay aware and prepare for that softer side of violence mm -hmm. in their organization? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, in the United States. Um, the active shooter is a, a real concern and should always be a, a part of um, any active shooter program that the organisation implements. But equally, that's that's the same wherever there is a prevalence of firearms, or as I said right at the start, or what I said in your previous question, understanding the risks. So in your workplace, it's important to understand the risks that exist. And this is part of the softer side. The softer side isn't don't use a sledgehammer to, to smash a nut when you can have a nice, delicate uh, pair of nutcrackers there. You know, you, and so, you know, think about the cost as well. The nutcrackers are far cheaper than the sledgehammer. Um, but you know, when, when you look at a workplace, there are so many different parameters and so many different factors that can impact. There's your work colleagues. Um, lots, lots of violence occurs, violence, intimidation, harassment, whether it be sexual, whether, whether it be through race, um, you know, lot, there are, there's lots, a lot of violence that many people don't automatically identify as being workplace violence, but by fact they are, um, because violence is something that causes harm. Harm doesn't have to be physical harm. It can also be that mental harm. Um, that somebody suffers, and so somebody being abusive, the constant name calling. These are these are softer sides, much softer than somebody pointing a gun. But the impact of them could actually be equal, because somebody through being bullied, somebody through intimidation, um, could suffer mental harm and anguish, which could obviously, from a workplace perspective, could impact. 
um, their effectiveness, their morale, the whole team's morale, but ultimately it could cause somebody to commit suicide. You know, so these are the soft. When we talk about softer skills, it's it's things like, okay, what's your what's your, what governance do you have in place to minimise harassment, to minimise bullying? What procedures do you have in place to have everybody take part in security? And by that I mean, okay, is everybody aware of how to open and close and make sure barriers exist if you, there's a public private interface you know softer sides include um, making sure that you have uh, the necessary skills training um, and organizational resilience to deal with acts of violence that may come so when we talk about workplace violence here in the UK lots of lots of the drive that we do is towards that proactive prevention that I mentioned earlier so it's understanding situational awareness you know, in remembering your workplace isn't necessarily a fixed location. Nowadays, with the smaller corporate worlds, you know, your, your workplace could be here one day, in the UK, then, oh, sorry, in, in the US one day, in the UK another day, across in Australia the next day. Technically, each of them is a, becomes a workplace. As an organisation, what thoughts are being put in place to protect your staff while they're travelling from location to location? Is the, is the organization aware of what risks exist? Is there a terrorist threat? Is there a threat from protesters? What about environmental threats? Are you going into hurricane season, monsoon season, or is there a risk of tsunami? So all of these sort of things, the naturally occurring offense, uh, incident threats don't actually impact workplace violence because violence is uh, adversarially um, enacted. But if you think about it, it all revolves around the organisation taking the time to assess and understand the risks, making sure that they've got the good governance in place uh, to manage the risks that they have, provide training and resources that's, need, that's needed um, wherever they start their staff are working. I hope that answers. It does. And, you know, kind of leads into my next question. So when looking at protection, you know, whether it's for kind of that harder side of violence or softer side of violence, you know, you indicated um, that one of the best weapons that an organization might have in, you know, helping to protect that in their workplace is communication. Can you talk a little bit around how communication can play a huge factor in being a protective agent uh, within a workplace? Yes. So th- there's a number of strands to this. So if we take organizationally, um, communication, senior management really need to communicate. They need the organization to understand their approach to protection, to workplace violence, to threat and risk management. That has to be communicated somehow. If it's a 50-page document, um, nobody's going to read it. If it's either a briefing, a team talk, and a town hall, that involves communicating. That might involve verbal communication, or it might be through audiovisual communication, so creating of presentations. That's important because it it provides the direction and the parameters of acceptable behaviour uh, within an organisation. When we look at personal safety and security, communication is vital, and communication again isn't just the spoken word; it's the listening. 
and this this doesn't necessarily just apply in the workplace. This can apply in the streets uh, when you're on holiday, when you're socialising, or in the cinema. You know, so when we look at communication skills and the importance of them, our hearing, the vast majority of our communication is, should be through listening. Um, I think my wife says I never listen, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I do lots of things and say lots of things. But the, the listening aspect is important because it's only through listening that you can either hear some complaints. You can hear if, there's, if there are any problems occurring. You can hear from a personal point of view if somebody's voice is increasing. Because if it's increasing, all of a sudden you realize that isn't normal. But you can only do that if you listen. And with listening, it's also paying attention. So listening is a vital communication skill because it helps you process the situation and it's directly linked to situation awareness because you're using your senses to assess and evaluate what the situation is that's presenting itself. So, verbal, uh, so the listening skill is important. The verbal communication is important to an organisation. It's you, you want that free flow of information. You want people to be able to share their concerns, you know, either in the direct workplace or if they're traveling, because it's only through sharing that information that you're going to increase the levels of knowledge and understanding by the organization. When they the, you increase the levels of knowledge and understanding, you're able to take steps to actually manage and mitigate those, those, risks, uh, those risks that exist. But as an individual... Verbal communication is really important because it's a double-edged sword. How I say things mm -hmm. has a totally different meaning to, I'm ever so sorry, I didn't understand what was being said there. Right? How you communicate um, is uh, can actually be a violence accelerator or it can be a, a car that calm in soothing um, activity the only other part element of communication that i would like to say is nonverbal communications they really really are important because nonverbal communications help you read and interpret it lets your brain function and identify potential triggers so if somebody is angry and i always show a slide of the, the amazing hulk turning green um well wouldn't it be wonderful if we knew somebody was going to be violent they turned green we really could avoid them life isn't that simple um, but there are still certain violence indicators that people can be aware of um that that they can see so the clenching of fists um, the pinpointing of pupils, the stare, the heavy breathing, the stance, all of these things, little nonverbal communication skills. But if you can understand them, you can interpret that and say there is potential for harm. If you can identify the potential for harm, you can actually extract yourself and avoid the situation. Great. <clears throat> so for business leaders and people in general, um, what are some things that maybe they're not thinking about that in your opinion they should be and should be um, thinking about probably even more so now um, when it comes to personal security and safety that you would like to share? Yeah, the well, I said it earlier, the cornerstone for me of personal safety and security is situation awareness. You know, if you can read, interpret, identify, 
Um, what's happening around you? Um, is there an argument taking place? Is, is this, can, can I smell burning? If you smell burning, what does that imply? You know, are you in a forest fire? Or is it a case of somebody's burnt some food? But using your senses and actually being situational, situationally aware it is really, really of paramount importance in, in personal safety and security. Um, I mean, there are many, many other things where we talk about business leaders, you know, uh, the communication aspects, keeping that flowing, keeping it fluid, understanding, listening, um, making sure that their policies are, are such that people can reach out because what you want is you want people to help support the protection of the business. The more they can protect the business, the greater the business is going to be. So why wouldn't you go that extra mile to actually give the tools and help support them to help you protect your, your business? You know, so making sure that, that you know you have policies for um if uh, I can't, I don't know what the term is in America, but whistleblowing. Um, you know, is there a whistleblowing policy? You know, is there a health and safety policy? Is there gre- are the grievance procedures? And these might seem, hold on, these are HR issues. What do they have to do with security? Well, security is all about protecting assets. It's about protecting people from loss, harm, or damage. It's about protecting assets, and it's also about protecting reputations. A business needs to protect its people, its assets, and its reputation to flourish. And so, therefore, everybody has a part to play in security. And really, the organization can go a great way to help. Well, and I think your employees will thank you for it, too, and preparing them, because I'm sure you know some of the what you may teach in a corporate setting for um, protection of the organization and their employees can be things that are universal in helping them to protect themselves personally when they're not maybe at work. So there could be some underlying benefits for both professionally and personally for them. Yeah. So when it comes to personal safety and security, that everything's transferable, you know, all you're doing is changing the setting that you're in. You know, and the and the environment that you're in. Um, if, as an organisation, you want to make sure that your staff who are travelling to, let's just say, East Africa, um, that they have the necessary skills and training. If they're going to be driving in Saudi Arabia, where road traffic incidents and deaths, mortality rates are sky high, that you provide them with them additional skills uh, to drive safely and, and defensively. You know, so. There's, there's things that the organization can do that help them, but the transferable benefits pass on to their staff who in turn pass it on to their children, their families. You know, and it's, you know, it, I, I've seen it work and it is a wonderful feeling when a young kid comes up to you and says, you can't do that because I've seen the little booklet that you wrote for my mummy. And she says, it, it's marvelous because what, what an organization should try to do is to build a security culture. It can't be done overnight. It can't be enforced, but it, it has to be driven um, by the actions of the top and the actions of the bottom and meeting together. Great. Oh, great advice. I love that security culture. So with that, we're just going to take a quick break and um, hear a word from our sponsor. So Workplace MVP is sponsored by R3 Continuum. 
Ensuring the psychological and physical safety of your organization and your people is not only normal, but a necessity in today's ever-changing and often unpredictable world. R3 Continuum can help you do that and more with their continuum of behavioral health crisis and security solutions that are tailored to meet the unique challenges of your organization. Learn more at www.r3c.com. So diving into some questions that are a little bit, um, that kind of go in the direction of where you were, you've touched on it a little bit, but the domestic versus international um, security and crisis management. So is there a difference between what organizations should be doing when looking at their domestic versus international crisis management or security plans? Um, yes, I'm sure there's there's going to be many um, many people from organizations say, no, 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 they're all the same. Unfortunately, they're not the same. And the reason that they're not the same, and you can actually take it a step further. If you look at domestically, if you have a single site, then it's all it's appropriate. You know your corporation is based on a single site, and you know you're operating from there. Brilliant. Your crisis emergency response plans are built around that, and that's because the scenarios that you can face, the social impacts that can happen, the environmental impacts. Are you in an earthquake zone? Are you in a tornado alley? You know, all of these things can impact your crisis management approach in that location. If you have multiple sites across the USA, then there's nothing to stop having a, an overarching corporate that provides the direction and strategy that the organization expects all of its different offices uh, to take. But each office should actually have their own crisis management plan because they will need to deal with the crisis. Unfortunately, I've seen it where people have thought, oh, let me telephone the USA and I'll get advice about this, this crisis that's happening. By the time somebody's woken up because of the time difference, um, people have managed to break through the walls, have come into the building, have started ransacking. You know, there has, they have to be localised. Um, they have to be specific to... Um, what you know, what the organization is going to face. I've I've worked with organizations where they might have had 10 offices in around the world, two or three in, individual countries, and we then build the crisis management plan specific for that location. There might be an overarching country one. Ultimately, the threats and risks and vulnerabilities that you face are going to trigger, be, in many cases, be the trigger for the crisis. So if we take, you know, and one example was um, uh, there was a crisis in Armenia a few years ago where the government got was overthrown by the people. Um, clients you know, and uh, American businesses um, were, have operations there and they wanted to implement and make sure that things were safe. Well, what might be okay in the USA isn't okay in them sort of scenarios uh, because the dynamics, the social dynamics are different. The violence indicators might be different. So you've got to take it from that particular perspective. Um, so it's a, it's a lot more work for organizations, but when you get it right, the benefits financial for the organization because, again, I talk about proactive prevention. You're trying to prevent an incident in the first place, but then you want an effective response 
and a timely recovery. Recovery, um, you know, and pl- planning and, ha- and having that in individual locations is far more easier to achieve than having it uh, from London, uh, from London or New York or wherever, and trying to dictate direct from that location. Great. So, <clears throat> what should be considered? when you have employees who are traveling. So it's, you know, when you have like those permanent locations, maybe you've got employees that are traveling from the U S to maybe another country, or maybe even just traveling within the United States as well. Um, but you know, if they're traveling internationally or maybe they're relocating or, you know, what are some of the things that often get missed that employers should, you know, make themselves aware of when they're considering those relocation or traveling scenarios? Yeah, well, one of the first things that I always advise or I ask clients or uh, businesses, can I have a look at your travel risk management policy? And normally I get a blank face or um, a pause or... um, um, we have this document, which has nothing to do with travel risk management, uh, or it might be a travel authorization that you go through a travel agent and they'll do they'll do things for you. Um, but really, an organisation should have a travel risk management policy. If they have wide and diverse um, locations around the world, um, some of which might be in Africa, Central Asia, wherever, um, what I always advise is, look, it's quite simple. The U.S. State Department, British Foreign Office, and many other governments actually categorize each country. It's quite simple to have a spreadsheet, and you have a country category down the side of each. If it's green, you know, and that might be category one to three, then it's standard procedure. You know, here's the procedures. If it's if it's a, a difficult environment, then these are the actions. If it's a dangerous, hostile environment, then these are the actions. So. Having that governance provides it prevents subjectivity, and what happens is those who are frequent travellers, and you know, I, I apologise if any of your listeners fault this criteria, but there are frequent travellers who've been there, seen it, done it. There are no risks. I know it all, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, they're the sort of people who might me and my team get called into uh, rescue, recover, or or to. Um, help identify what's gone wrong post-incident. If you've got that governance, the parameters are clearly defined and the organisation has an expectation. The flip side of that is that the individual understands that the organisation is meeting its duty of care. It's taking care of me. If, for example, you go into an, an orange country, an amber country, and um, there is there are significant road traffic uh, incidents, then and you provide training or you provide a trained driver in that country, you're managing that risk, which means that you're minimizing disruption, you're maximizing effective operational effectiveness, and you're keeping your staff safe and secure. And you do that through all aspects of, of travel and risk. And actually, it's, it's very, very beneficial. So when people are looking overseas, look at the individuals, look at your operations, Individuals have a responsibility as well. You know, it's no good going to a country where there's malaria or yellow fever and saying it's not my fault. I nobody nobody injected me. Well, you know, 
Sorry, there's the travel advice. And again, as part of the travel advice, it might be that you give a package. It might be that the risks are so great that you provide them with hostile um, environment training or difficult environment training so that they know and understand the sort of threats, risks and vulnerabilities that happen, carjackings that may occur, but also the softer side, which is, you know, food poisoning, um, which is which are malarial diseases and how they can impact you, which are lack of medical facilities. And by the way, we're now going to give you first aid training. So oh, that's the sort of thing that it's really, really beneficial for organizations to consider um, uh, you know, w- when, they t- when they take things forward. Great. So you shared the comparison of proactively preventing versus reactively responding. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the difference um, and what our listeners should be considering when they're looking at that crisis management or business continuity programs and plans and, and what should they be keeping in mind, um, you know, from your perspective, you know, so that they're, you know, more on the proactive end of it versus the reactive yeah. The um, so proactive pre- uh, proactive preventing. What you're trying to do is identify. And again, the words that you're going to hear me continually use are threats, risks, etc. Because that's what um, security you know security is there to manage and minimise the impact from the threats, risks, and vulnerabilities that exist. Um, proactive prevention is either individuals or organizations identifying the potential for harm or the potential for loss or potential for any other adverse aspect. If you can proactively identify it, then you can take steps to manage and mitigate it before you have to then deal with it. Reactive response or responding means that the incident has happened. You haven't seen it. You weren't aware of it. You didn't identify it. And now you're having to respond to it. But actually, your response might be survival because you might be in a hospital bed in in a third world country where there are poor medical facilities and you've got to wait 10 days for an emergency flight to come in and get you because there isn't the runway, there isn't the transport for whatever reason. But actually, from the organizational point of view, if you have to react to an incident, one, there's massive disruption. Two, it's in, it's resource intensive. And three, there is a massive cost implication. So the more you can prevent and minimize and mitigate the risks before they actually happen, the greater it is for an organization. But equally, the greater it is for me as an individual because I can go about my life and I can enjoy I can enjoy the safaris or I can enjoy visiting uh, ancient temples, you know, because I'm, I'm proactively helping myself and the organization stay safe. So, and looking at all of the advice you shared over the show so far, does it matter by the size of the organization when they're considering to implement a crisis management program or plan or how much of it that they implement? I know sometimes I hear, well, we have, you know, you kind of mentioned it, like we have this sheet of paper. This is what we go off of. You know, does it matter the size of the organization or should all organizations, if they've got employees, be looking at that? Um, it should be risk-based. So, so the, the primary, I always say every organization, the primary documentation you have before you look at crisis management and everything like that is 
you know, risk management strategy and your risk assessment. You sh everything should be risk-based because if you, by default, implement and design a certain process, so if you, if as an organization you said every single sub-office will create an emergency crisis management response plan, somebody has to write that. Time is money. It impacts operations, and the effectiveness of what's been written may not be relevant because it could be sheets of paper that gather dust, um, and when it happens, nobody knows where that's, that's them sheets of paper are. Um, so it has to be pragmatic. It has to be based on the pragmatic risks or looking at, at the realistic risks that can impact that organisation. Um, if the risks are, are such that... I'd say there's two aspects. It's the risk and the size of the organization because the size will impact um, um, the severity or can impact the severity of a crisis um, and the disruption that it's caused. Um, if you're a small office, you know, so for example, in our office at the moment, there's five people. Um, is, there, uh, is there a need for us to have a crisis management plan um, or do we go by our risk management strategy? Actually, we've got our risk management strategy. We've got emergency response plans. Emergency response plans are if there's fire, if there's this, if there's this or this. However, our staff travel overseas, and when they travel overseas, sometimes it's in difficult or hostile environments. So, therefore, we almost write a separate plan and strategy for that activity while they're in that location. When they come back. That's great. We can we can forget about that and return back to normal. But what what it is? It's that continued pre pre preparation, and preparedness um, that's relevant, proportionate, cost effective. Um, but then ultimately, if it was needed, it can be implemented. Okay. So one last question for you. That's a little bit personal in terms of your career. But is there something? across your your career journey that you are most proud of that you want to share with our listeners? Um, there's actually been many things and, and obviously I'll, I'll look at I'll keep it to um, um, from the professional side and I think the most rewarding thing that I've ever done was um, during 2010, 2011, um, the monsoon floods in Pakistan um, devastated. Um, I, I think at one point it was over a third of a third of the land was underwater. Um, some of the regions, whole towns, had been swept away and were left with rubble. Um, and some of these regions were in the border areas of, of Pakistan with Afghanistan. So there was lots of difficulties in getting support and aid to them. And, you know, one of the proudest uh, moments of my career was being able to um, manage and the operations that got the team and got our got the UK government's aid into these areas. Um, and we were able to distribute tents, water. Um, so people actually had somewhere to sleep. And actually, you know, a year later, they were still living in the same tents. Um but given given something that actually meant something to humanity, that was really important. It was important that you know, and I've still got photos of little kids, um, you know, just with glee swimming in, in a puddle because they they just received the first drink of fresh water, or they just received a sweetie bar that a candy bar that's uh, you know 
wow, what's that? I've never seen it before. Um, so when we, by being able to do that, very close to the border where there was the threat from the Taliban, where it was, you know, it was real operational security management, um, looking at dynamic risk management because it was still raining. We had to divert on some roads um, and then getting to a point where we could stop the cars on the motorway. Um, I always remember the the head of the of the mission and I, we pulled over, we'd, we'd waved goodbye to our police escorts, we looked at each other and we just hugged each other. Um, and that was just so rewarding because we knew that at that time we'd done something that made a difference to hundreds of people. Oh, so powerful. I'm sure that'll be a memory you'll carry with you forever. Just that that reward of being able to help those people. Amazing. So if somebody listening wanted to connect with you, Andy, how would they go about doing that? So I've been told that I'm a social media dinosaur. <laughs> um that's why there's members of my team who actually do all, all my social media. Apart from, apart from, I, I, I am, I'm very big on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I think when it first started, I went, oh, I'll have a go on this. And I've stayed with LinkedIn. And I like it because, you know, you can communicate some great discussions uh, on there. Um, my uh, email address, I think, has, has been provided, as has my work address um, and telephone number. If ever anybody has any uh, any questions, any concerns, if ever anybody is worried about staff safety, what people around the world have found out, that just give me a call. Wonderful. Well, <clears throat> it's been so great to listen to your advice and your knowledge, and um, you know, thank you so much for letting us celebrate you and have you on the show to share all that great information with our listeners. We appreciate you, and I'm sure that your organization and your employees do as well. We also want to thank our show sponsor, R3 Continuum, for supporting the Workplace MVP podcast. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you've not already done so, make sure to subscribe to uh, so that you get our most recent episodes and other resources. You can also follow our show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Workplace MVP. If you are a Workplace MVP or know someone who is, we want to know. Email us at info at workplace-mvp.com. Thank you all for joining us and have a great rest of your day.